This is Michael Wilson from Queensryche, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalheads, this is Scott Thompson welcoming you to Episode 5 of our Little Mountain Sound Project. Yep, I think we might be a little bit behind in getting all these presented in 2015, because here it is, October, and this is only Episode 5. And I think looking at all the audio we have gotten so far that this is only about halfway through the project. And believe it or not, we've been working at this so long that the uh, interview that we're airing today was actually recorded in October of 2014. That's how long we've been working at this thing. So for those of you that have been keeping track of this project, we've been kind of flipping back and forth between artists and behind-the-scenes folks. And this week, the pendulum swings back to behind-the-scenes folks. And this week, we feature a fantastic talk we had with Bob Brooks. Without Bob Brooks, a lot of stuff in uh, Little Mountain and music history probably wouldn't have happened. This guy has been a recording for a long time. Started out doing his first project in 1957, and he is still doing stuff today. So not only did uh, Bob manage Little Mountain during its heyday, he and his wife also owned the studio for a period of time. And he was also responsible for bringing in most of the talent that we associate with Little Mountain Sound. Bob brought in Roger Monk, who we've heard in a prior episode. Bob also brought in his nephew, Mike Frazier, who's a frequent focus on metal guest and, of course, a very well-known producer in his own right. And Bob also brought in Bob Rock. I mean, come on. What else can you say? The guy brought in Bob Rock, right? So this guy has had a pretty storied career in recording, and I have to say that I am extremely envious of him. He's got an amazing knowledge of recording history and in particular Little Mountain Sound, but everything else he's done since then. And if you want to know what Bob is up to today, I urge you to go over to brooksound.com. You can read all about Bob's history and what he's doing today. There's also some great photos up there. So definitely go up to brooksound.com and check that site out. So as I said, we did this interview back in October of 2014. Bob was actually one of the first people that we talked to, or very early on in the project that we talked to. And like I do with a lot of audio that we record, you know, I record it and it just sits there and I don't listen to it again until it comes time to edit. And I got to tell you, I forgot how good an interview this was, but I had a blast editing this one. Bob was so engaging and he had such great depth of knowledge and remembering all the stuff and just what a great guy to talk to. It's like one of these guys I could probably sit down once a week and just talk about this stuff with and continue to be engaged probably for years. So I hope that you guys enjoy our conversation with Bob Brooks as much as we did actually doing it. And before we dive into the interview, I just want to give you one little statement off of Bob's website. I could almost consider it to be his motto and that is There is no retirement, only purpose. I hope when I get there, I feel the same way. So sit back and get ready for a great conversation with the one and only Bob Brooks.
Let's take it again. And Gene, yeah. really explore the studio space this time. You got it, Bruce. I mean, really. Yeah. Explore the space. I like what I'm hearing. Go away. Tonight we have Bob Brooks, who was another big figure in the story of Little Mountain Sound, and uh, you know, I was reading through the bio as well, which is which is actually a very comprehensive bio. And the first thing that caught my eye was the first recordings on the wire tape, and I was like, "Whoa!" I, I just kind of I couldn't believe that. It just kind of flipped me out. Yeah, I'm old enough to go back to wire recorders. <laughs> <laughs> Shoot. Yeah, we used to cut acetates from the wire and um, put uh, beat tones on the front of the commercials so that we didn't scratch the acetates and cueing them and stupid things like that. But that's that was mid-50s. I remember when tape showed up, uh, paper-backed tape uh, on the scene, and uh, those were wonderful days. It is pretty cool when I get to talk to somebody who's been doing this you know, for that long, you, you know, you read about a lot of the techniques that were used in those days. And, and I'm kind of a, a techie gearhead kind of guy who really loves a lot of that stuff and the stories behind, you know, what was done and things like that. And, and so when, when you know, when you get to talk to someone like you, that's experienced a lot of that firsthand, it's, it's kind of always a privilege for me to talk to folks like you. We had a crazy trip all through the years. And when I read and saw Tom Dodd's movie, I thought, man, there's a lot of familiar territory there because we all started in radio stations. We all started with real knobs in our hands and view meters and all of that kind of thing. And uh, our first recordings were done 
in the mid fifties in record, record radio stations because mm. uh, there really weren't any studios around, at least not in our territory. Yeah. But, um, it, uh, it, it's been a quite a, quite a journey actually. Yeah. It's, it's funny. My, like my kids have seen pictures of me on the radio and they're just surprised at the, at the console board that we're using where there is no faders. It's all just big old round knobs and VU meters. And they're like, really dad? It's like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm that old. That's that's what the radio console used to look like. Yeah, I remember uh, on a Sunday that I shift I was on, and uh, there were two control rooms, but you were by yourself, and we had to record some network stuff, and uh, it was all manually punched up long before automation, no digital, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember sitting as a, as an operator doing my engineering thing in, one, in, in control room A, and I'm looking over at control room B, and I'm seeing what looked like brown snow flying around. And when I got over there finally, because I was tied down on my microphone, I found that the show that was supposed to go on the air in about four hours uh, had come into one-inch pieces as the <laughs> uh, stop machine, the, the, the arm on the tape deck had not released <laughs> to shut the machine off. And it had now chopped the whole show into one-inch pieces, and they were all over the floor and the ceiling. <laughs> oh, man. What what to do? <laughs> uh, those, those are crazy days. Besides which, your live radio was good because we had so much fun. You did. You did, yeah. That one beats my worst one, which was we were broadcasting a game, so all I had to do was basically be at the station and just make sure everything was going, transmitter was good, levels were okay, and all that. And uh, we ended up having a wire that was shorted out. So I ended up having to stand there in the uh, engineering room holding a wire in place for the whole game to keep us on air because, as you know, dead air is not what you can do. So, um, yeah, it was a long-ass day. <laughs> Yeah, I've had a couple of those. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Too Fun far from stuff. the phone, couldn't do anything. Uh, yeah, long day. Yeah, and it's it's crazy. You know, I, I went right into radio uh, from high school, and uh, then, you know, 19, 19 years later, I, I had been started to record and I slid into the recording world. And then one day in the early 70s, my lawyer and my accountant both took me out to lunch at the same time, and that's ominous. <laughs> and, uh, and and they said, basically, Bob, you idiot, why are you still working at the radio station? You should just be big, doing your hobby full time. And I ended up uh, heading into recording. Uh, I did. Uh, we built a studio on um, Homer Street in Vancouver. And uh, Homer Street uh, was the first, what I'd call a professional studio, because we actually put a Rupert Need console in there. And that was the first pro console installed in the city. And then four years later, there was an upset over at this new studio that was competing with us uh, called Little Mountain. And uh, uh, I got a call from the owners and they said, would you come over and uh, bring your business that you got and um, and run it for us? And that was my beginning with Little Mountain in 1976. Now, in, in 76, um, when you got in there, what, what what were your main responsibilities in the very beginning? What did they tell you? Look, we have to fix this, this, and this. What were your big problems? 
Well, the biggest issue was that uh, the, the studio had virtually no business other than the internal business that uh, Griffiths Gibson and uh, Miles Ramsey, interestingly enough, and I know you've talked to him, mm-hmm. uh, had, were doing. So it was uh, famous as a jingle studio, and they did very well because they were getting award after award. So their fame in all corners of uh, the media was um, the jingle studio. My problem that I had to deal with, challenge to deal with, was um, number one, to get enough staff to pull things together because I had a receptionist and I had one engineer. uh, and He was not a board engineer. He was a technical engineer. Um, So I had some pretty big big challenges as I started out, but uh, one of the guys that I hired, I I think you also talked to, was Roger Monk out of of, uh, Toronto. And he had come to work with me. Uh, gee, uh, so he reminded me just just a, a year ago. I was in a session in Brian Adams' studio with a big band, and I had uh, called uh, Roger to see if he would dress an engineer for me. And he said, "Yeah, by all means." And it was on June 14th, and he said to me, "Do you realize what day this is?" And I said, "No." And he said, "Well, this was uh, it was 40 years ago today that I came to work for you out of Toronto." And I kind of went, "Holy cow! <laughs> how the time goes by!" But Roger came to me with uh, at Homer Street, and then when I moved over to Little Mountain and took over GM position, uh, Roger came with me, and he became my sysop and my senior engineer, and from there we started to build a non-jingle studio. No knock on on the GGP guys, but we had to prove to the world that we were more than just a uh, jingle studio. So my my job as GM and then ultimately owner was to... um, you know, carry the weight of, of making this uh, place famous and make some money. Um, it was, you know, I wasn't the owner. I was just the GM guy. Come in, please help us. And I brought a lot of business with me that I was in the middle of. And they said, uh, bring anything with you. The, uh, the, the, the Griffiths Gibson guys said, come and help us. And they said, bring anything with you, but don't steal any jingle work from us. And I said, no problem. And I brought movie work and album work and movie or um, various other projects. So it, it, it actually was a good fit. We had a good time. We had a ball with those boys. And uh, But it was a challenge because uh, we needed to have a breakthrough. And the breakthrough came, if I remember correctly, um, I believe it was a band called Prism. And I think they were signed to Capitol Records. And we broke through, and actually, and it may have been just a Canadian breakthrough. I don't know how big they were in the states, but it was, it was capital. I don't think it was capital Canada. I think it was capital L.A. I think it was a full tilt deal, and they broke through and had a, one or two singles come off that album, and uh, we proved to the world that we could do more than jingles. So uh, we cheered and went on from there.
when they offered you the job, did you hesitate at all? Did you have to think about it for, for, for long? Not, not really. No, I, I was always in for a challenge, and and uh, the the studio was well built. Um, uh, you know, Jeff Turner had built an, an amazing place that was very based. I think it was based on the Air Studios in London. In fact, when George Martin came through some years later and, and gazed around Studio A, and he said, "Wow." What a great copy job. <laughs> he says, this, uh, whoever built this uh, sure copied us really well. And I said, well, it was one of your English friends, Jeff Turner. <laughs> well, that's a, it's a great studio to copy if you're going to copy one, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 So can you tell me about, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, uh, John Vertacic? John Vertacic. He was... He was Mr. Magic. I had a terrible time getting John Vertasic to move out from Toronto. I I needed a really high quality tech guy uh, because that the the gentleman that was uh, that I inherited was uh, obviously not in for the long haul. He was up to his eyeballs in creating uh, a new uh, telephone system for mobile. He was highly involved in the cell world, would you believe? <laughs> and um, he uh, was heading off in that direction. And John it was a very nervous type, did not want to move to Vancouver, even though I kept convincing him he should come and made him great offers. And then one day we flew him out, middle of August, beautiful day, took him out to the salmon place on the water or to have dinner and so on and so forth. And he went back home, talked to his wife, but they still didn't want to move. And I finally said, John, I'm calling you because I just put two tickets for you at the airport in Toronto. They're open-ended, but I want them to be used before the end of the month. And I finally got him to Vancouver. When people ask me about the, the, the joy of Little Mountain and the success of Little Mountain, I have to say that John Vertasic was the guy. He was a master at keeping everything tidy. He anticipated trouble before it came, and uh, he and his te and the technical department were always on top of the stuff. When Aerosmith kept coming back to the studio over and over, and I think we did three projects for them, people would say, why are they coming to Vancouver? And their answer, very simply, if you ask them, was, well, our per diem operationally was about $25,000 a day to be away from home in a studio or uh, like hotels and all the staff and everything that they always carried with them. And he said, we can't, we can't have any downtime. And they came to Little Mountain because of John. There was no downtime. We just never let them down. You know, Miles spoke pretty highly of John as well. But when we were talking to him, he was like, yeah, you really, if you're going to talk to Bob, you really got to talk to Bob about John. Well, John was just amazing. When we lost John to cancer here just a few years ago, it was a, an awful day because uh, he, was a, he was a master. And really... I, uh, coming back into the Vancouver market, because I've been away here for about 25 years, I was in the States for a while, but uh, after I sold Little Mountain, but he he was never replaced. I, I don't know of anybody that comes anywhere close to his stature of uh, ability and insight into the world of analog and then transitioned into the world of digital that we all saw, saw coming at us in the uh, in the mid to late 80s. Hmm. 
Yeah, and there was was there a lot of people over the years trying to get John to move from Little Mountain? I don't know of any um, uh, directly. I'm sure that he was been bumped on, yeah. but um, I had a habit of keeping my people. Uh, I had people with me for 15 to 20 years, yeah. and uh, John was one of them, and I paid them well. Their pension plans were good, and their, their health care plans were good, and uh, I was a fun guy to be with, I guess. So I... <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm hoping because we we did have a uh, we did have a crew that stayed with us for a long time, and John was the uh, the top of the pyramid on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now, of course, Bruce Fairburn was in the band Prism, and you heard him as as a producer. What did what did you see in him that made you think, you know what? I think he can produce. We didn't hire J- Bruce. Bruce was already an independent guy and started to uh, reach out to the labels and became involved. And here's where the history gets a little foggy for me, but Bruce was involved in, in, in doing projects and he uh, came and fell at home at Little Mountain because he'd been there so much. And so we ended up just doing a lot of work for him. And that went on until right about the time that I sold the studio and Little Mountain came to an end, uh, because of some ramifications of, of real estate, and uh, he had already built the Armory Studios, and so he had he had built another wonderful place, and it's still running. In fact, that edifice is there. It's more than an edifice because it's an operating studio. I was just in it a few weeks ago, and and it uh, it just brought back great memories of, uh, of Bruce. Yeah, no, you would have had a close relationship with Bruce. What made him a, such a great producer? I'd say right off the top, he always came through with whoever he was dealing with at the business end. He was Mr. Magic. When when he told a label, uh, this is going to take X number of weeks, going to take X number of dollars, and we will deliver on this date, he came through every time, and he still managed to produce amazing music. And uh, he became famous for that. Uh, there's just no question because he never let anybody down. And I never had a bad moment with Bruce. Uh, he was always easy to work with. Uh, he was a good partner on some projects. Uh, he actually, he wanted, um, example, uh, in Studio B, he really wanted to spread out the SSL we had installed in uh, Studio B because I, I put my first one in, in, um, in A, Studio A, and he said, what do I need to do? And I said, well, I said, look, uh, why don't you step up to the plate and buy me another 16 uh, channels on that board and we'll just expand it out. And then I just made a deal with him on to the, uh, to the value of those 16 channels. And he's easy. Uh, he was one of those guys where you didn't go around and around the mulberry bush. He just said, hmm, that sounds good. Shook hands. It was done. You know, I just bought the bought the channels, and he was a happy guy, and I was a happy guy. So, with that kind of stuff that you described, then I can see that someone who, who acts like that for a business deal is the same way that they act when they're dealing with people as well. So, I imagine that that's probably part of the reason why he got things done with bands, as it wasn't you know hammering and hard, and it was like a you know. As someone told me recently, it was a 62-second discussion. We had 60 seconds to discuss it and two minutes to make up your mind, and you were done. And that's the way we were uh, all through the years. Uh, so it was amazing, the contracts. We never did get to sign, and, and but the project went ahead. I remember driving in the fog in my vet one uh, day on the Delta, heading south across the border to my home in the States that I had uh, acquired at the uh, lake, and the phone went off. 
and um, which had been installed by that engineer, by the way, uh, <laughs> earlier. And I can't remember his name now, and I feel badly, but he, um, the guy, it was, it was Warner Brothers on the line. And Warner Brothers used to uh, kid us because they, they called us Warner Brothers North because we said uh, we did so much business with John Kalodner at the helm. And it was John, and he had a project. And I think it was, um, uh, it wasn't Aerosmith because they were Sony, but um, anyway, uh, somebody needed to book in. And, and in two minutes, we just said, okay, when do you need to be in? I checked the diaries. I called somebody, called them right back. We made a deal uh, dollar-wise right there on the scene. And it was going to be about a $400,000 package. And I said, uh, okay, are, are, are you serious about this? And they said, yeah. And I said, okay, well, you know our, our wire number, and uh, 50 grand will set it up to go. And when I came back the next morning, it was 50 grand on the count. And that was our deal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it's pretty amazing, too. You know, even with, with the way that Bruce worked, the fact that, that in that time period when he was doing so many of those bands, that he was able to overcome any of the other stuff of people being, you know, new to, to doing a big studio and, and all that stuff and still managed to get things in on time. It's it's a pretty amazing accomplishment, I think. Uh, and, and his big deal was rehearsal, rehearsal, rehearsal to blue in the face. Mm. He would hire a big warehouse outside of Vancouver and he would go to work. When he came into the studio, he was very well prepared and the band was already fluffed out, burnished, <laughs> uh, tired of the songs and now is ready to actually make them things you might say yeah and that's i mean definitely there's a lot of, of albums that that came in you know in the in the 80s especially where you go back and go gee what is it that made this album so great and a lot of times you go back and read the story and, and it's all the same thing it's it's the pre-production and and yep. how it comes down to it so yeah that's it's amazing he, the stuff that he did is just amazing it is so in 1982 you were offered to buy the studio yeah, it's, it was one of those crazy deals where uh, the the GGP guys, Griffiths Gibson guys, they wanted to come out from underneath the ownership, and they uh, had already acquired a partnership of Western Broadcasting. Western Broadcasting is one of the really big players, or was, they've changed their name now up here, but uh, they were a big player in, in Canada, uh, television, radio stations, uh, cable, and um, uh, so they took over, and uh, so then I answered to someone else in my GM days, uh, and that was a good relationship. We had a good time, and the GGP guys just ranted from us and got on with their business, and um the 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 Western broadcast people came to me about I think it was uh, in late eighty eighty one somewhere in eighty one and they said look would you like to buy the studio and I said you've got to be kidding I'm just a poor man and you don't pay me much and I'm the general manager like give me a break I, don't, I can't buy this studio because by that time we were starting to cook with some fairly big stuff that was happening and. Um, they said, well, we think that you you can buy the studio, and they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. I sold my house that I had bought way back uh, in the 60s in, in, in the suburb of Vancouver, and I managed to come up with enough money to buy the studio. I think I had $300 left when we went out for a celebratory dinner. And uh, that's that was it. I, I bought the studio at a ridiculous price from Western. 
And my wife and I were on the hook with the banks and the way we went to work. And we just carried on from there. And at that point is when we made some fairly crucial decisions to break up the Rupert Deed boards. And I know Bob Rock at that time, he bought a bunch of pieces and uh, made sure that they were not lost and other people bought it. But we installed two brand new SSLs and my wife and I were on the hook in those days for about $800,000. Mm. And uh, that that was good. We went on then for um, almost 10 years uh, as uh, owners until we decided one day that uh, we'd uh, done enough. And I saw the handwriting on the wall in two ways. I saw the, the digital world coming at us uh, as I, 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 I walked by guys in the big bands doing uh, side work on this thing called Pro Tools and um, became interested in what is this all about and then the handwriting spoke to me and said, you know what, this world is going to change. Mm. The other thing that I also saw was that um, a big studio of this size uh, and this league really couldn't be a mom-and-pop operation, and we were truly a mom-and-pop, uh, my wife and I, doing this thing. And uh, I, uh, it needed to be either owned by a corporation or it needed to be owned by an artist uh, because they need the tax write-offs. And uh, there's just too much. We were just continually being beat up, having to add more gear, add more gear, and we were... We were always pounding away at, 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 at raising funds to add more gear. Not to say that we didn't do well with it. It was very, very successful, and we made lots of money at it. And I sold at the peak of the event in 92 and walked away uh, very happy. He dusted off our hands and said, well, that was a great ride, and it was time to uh, say enough is enough for no. now. And 18 months later, the legend of Little Mountain went away as the real estate situation came down on the new owners, and they pulled everything out, and there was no more Little Mountain. Now, Bob, what, what album for you was the one that made it a lot easier for you to get the axe in rather than you having to go out and chase them? What? Sorry, I, I, I was having a bad connection. Okay. You say what? Which album was the one that sold the studio for to the bands rather than so that they came to you to record there rather than you having to chase them? I would say Bon Jovi probably because John Bon Jovi when he came to us uh, or at least the, 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 uh, the label came to us we made a super deal for them because no one had ever heard of John Bon Jovi and we said why are these guys coming from New Jersey to us but it was fine we made a super deal and when that broke loose, that kind of got the international attention big time. Mm -hmm. And we also did so much work with the, with the punk bands, the metal bands, the European bands. I mean, I, I'm sure that you've, um, you know, you, you've seen the list of, of, of uh, the crazy people that we had, you know, coming in. You know, uh, there was just an awful lot of... Uh, uh, you know, who ever heard of Crocus yet?
or you know, <laughs> poison, scorpions, skid row. You know, there, there's a bunch of them that that that. that it was, I you know, this is one of these things. Where as the owner, I never got awfully close to a lot of this from the music side of the thing, which why. Why I, I, when you guys called me, I thought I am I'm going to be the boring guy out of this whole interview because I was just the owner. I just wrote the checks to buy, buy more compressors and limiters for Bob Rock and Mike Fraser. But um, uh, we, I had a I ran into a friend uh, that I got to know in Idaho after I sold the studio who knew more about Little Mountain. Then I knew about Little Mountain because he kept up with what we were doing. Mm. He knew that so-and-so played a certain guitar on a certain day on a certain song. And I said, oh, really? I mean, you know, stuff like that. It, it, you you get people who really follow that. And but for me, it was uh, just pounding away and making sure that we were efficient, that we were on the ball, we were open up every day, we got our job done. And the only day we were closed uh, was Christmas Day. Mm. And we insisted on that. Yeah, now Bob, I want to I want to talk to you about egos. Okay, you would have had these multi platinum musicians coming into the studio. Now you're the manager there, so I'm assuming if they had a problem, you're the guy that they go to. Now we spoke to Miles, and he told us a story about Stephen Tyler getting the fittings changed in the bathroom <laughs> that he didn't like them. Now I'm sure there's multiple stories like that. Do you have any funny stories of some of the, the, the demands some of the bands asked? Well, uh, there was. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, what happened was there was a there was a leakage problem in the urinal in the men's room, and one of the bands uh, who should probably go unnamed went in and peed all over his shoes <laughs> because they had taken out the fitting and they had put a sign on the door, but somehow it was missed and. Um, there was a, there was a lot of unhappiness there, and and the gentleman who was in the tech department came back from a run around the block and realized what had happened while he was waiting for a part to arrive, and uh, there was uh, he said I'll quit right now, and I said no no you won't it's fine the shoes will dry life will go on and you know and life did go on. <laughs> there was uh, yeah, the the. Um, uh, the the Olivia Newton John session we did Don't Cry from the Argentina we had eighty four players in Studio A and uh, we we did that live and Olivia was in on the floor singing live in a booth with everybody right there and and the, it was the great ending coming to that piece and 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 the French horn guy farted uh, and his horn farted pardon the expression <laughs> and um, and he ran to the bathroom and was throwing up. And I had to go and get him and say, come back, come back. We're okay. We're just get back here because we're going to do a pickup on it. We did a pickup and a punch in and Armin Steiner, who was uh, standing as the executive engineer on that, he approved and it was great. So, you know, stupid things like that were happening because we did so much motion picture business and we did uh, just movies of the week by the dozens. And I never even kept track of that stuff. Mm. Now, the big one was Platoon because we got Sheridan and Oscar for that. Mm. Yeah. Now, would, would you have had a, like, you would have had people calling you. You would, you would have probably would have had to turn a lot of people down to that they wanted to book studio time, and you just said, "Look, we were fully booked." Uh, we're we were booked, in the, and and we were the highest priced place in town, and, the, and some of the other studios in town will keep saying, "Well, you you keep charging these ridiculous prices." I said, "Yeah, let's to keep you guys in business," you know, because we were not <laughs> afraid of high prices. 
uh, it, it, to me, I've always had an attitude of uh, if it's a high price, uh, I can afford to use that price as actually uh, a positive aspect of, of marketing. It's um, you know, do I do I want a dollar forty nine deal? No, I want the big deal. Yeah, I would imagine that when you guys were really peaking, and it seemed like you just were getting you know hit album after hit album coming out of there, that at some point you must have got some kind of bigwig manager to call you up and offer to help you out by letting his band go up there for a very cheap price to record. Do you have ever have those kind of uh, opportunities, as I would say? Mm, not really. No? No. no we, we had a great uh, run of people coming, and we were, yes, doing very, very well. Uh, I used to watch the USA Today used to have that on the entertainment page on their third section. They, they would have the, the top five um, albums and or singles listed uh, all the time there, at least once a week. I think on Fridays they used to list it. And we always had at least two, maybe three uh, singles that were published and they came from us. Mm -hmm. we, were, we were the guys that were doing that. And that was, that was, I'll, that stands out in my mind as being very exciting because uh, here we were with an, a major U.S paper and we were making headlines in it and, and we could point to that hmm. yeah yeah now it's interesting you know before you were talking about seeing the digital revolution coming and you know for me that's that's kind of amazing to to hear you talk about it like that because i mean i remember when the first versions of things like pro tools and cubase and stuff came out and although they were amazing at the time coming from tape just the fact that it took so long. I would remember just applying, oh, I'm going to add a reverb and literally just going and having coffee and a sandwich and hoping when I went back that whatever it rendered was actually usable. Otherwise, it was like, well, we'll be doing this all again for the next hour. And, you know, for a lot of people looking at that, you would think, well, this is never going to catch on as opposed to what at that point we thought of as the instant gratification of tape. What was it that you saw in Pro Tools that made you really feel that that was going to take off and be the next revolution? I'm not a techie. Far from it. But I I, I, I heard enough from John and from uh, Ron Obvious and then from the engineer guys that pointed out to me what was coming and how fast it was going to be coming. And at that point, they were putting their money on Pro Tools simply because they saw how easily everybody was spinning off stuff that needed to be fixed or adjusted, that it was being adjusted quite easily. There was no loss, no speed issues. Uh, everything stayed transparent. And there was, there was cheering in the control because it, it, in the old days, the spinning off, you were always holding your breath that you were up to speed and that you were, how many layers are you of emotion were you going through, you might say, mm. and, and losing. And, and, and the engineer guys were always paranoid about that, yeah. uh, as you can well imagine. And to not have that paranoia anymore, you could see, okay, something's coming here. So I would not ever say that I was so prescient to know that uh, the Pro Tools or Digital World was going to eat our clock, but... Uh, there was enough rumble around. And then at the personal level, my wife and I deciding that we had had enough 
and it was time to bail while bailing was good. So we actually made the decision based on the technical, yes, that we saw coming, but beyond that, it was also we were at the peak of Little Mountain's success, and I took the attitude just as an owner, now's the time to sell when we're at the top because mm. we we took this studio that I paid a ridiculous sum for and it was a multi-million dollar sale. Yeah. And you go, okay, that's enough. And it took me almost three years to sell the studio. Yeah. So in the 80s when you had, the late 80s when you had like Bon Jovi and Motley Crue and you know, you had Dave Lee Roth there and, and Aerosmith and all these bands coming in and out and you would have had the plan earlier in the 80s. Do you think in the end that the success of the studio wildly exceeded your expectations? Yeah, it was beyond anything that we could have imagined. And I think it was a combination of things that made it happen. The the uh, the studio, uh, the, the, sorry, the, the bands coming, we kept feeding off each other and, and the publicity kept feeding off and spinning off. And it came to the point where we were so booked far in advance Many times over a period of years, we were booked a year and a half in advance, locked out, and it, and, and there were just no holes anymore. And each studio was was of the two main ones. We and then we had the side rooms as well, and um, it just it just kept spinning. It kept going, and and uh, there was a there was an excitement factor there, and the vibes. Um, I, I given the one of the things that we had going for us was I had a full-time kitchen in there, and uh, and and an old lovely Ger German lady who uh, he was matronly and loved everybody and talked to everybody, and it was it was the one place that was um, neutral territory, mm -hmm. and uh, the dining room and the suits from the advertising agencies always made sure that they were there for lunch because they could sit with John Bon Jovi who was in Studio A. <laughs> yeah, it's all, yeah, you know, food, it's a wonderful thing, right? Yeah, David Foster sat there, you know, worked with us for years, did his stuff, and when he wrote, oh, what was the theme song for the first motion picture, Karate Kid, and there was a big single that he wrote, and he, I remember, I wished I'd kept that, uh, or got my hands on it, but I remember him sitting at the dining room table, and on some fool's cap, he had written the first two verses of that song, and he shoved it over to me and says, what do you think? And then he called a friend. I was Ry Cooter. He called and said, "Okay, finish this off for me." And I, I I'm not sure. But I, may, I may be wrong on that. I, I never really kept track of that history. But hmm. um, it, it was like crazy stuff like that. And and, and uh, there was just everybody was. The bands would say to us. Some of these band guys would say to us, "We're not." We're not sure what it is, but there's a great vibe about this place. And I said, yeah? What, what, what do you mean? And they said, we come here and we feel like we're at home. Hmm. And I think it was that, it was that atmosphere. Uh, my wife was very good at that. She, uh, she knew how to smooth with people. And the gal we had, in the, as I say, in the dining room was so good. And um, she, uh, she would leave great meals for the, the night shift. And as they were going off into the night, and uh, she was loved, of course. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's, you know, the case, though. I mean, vibe is pretty much everything when you're spending all that money and you're spending all that time to 
you, you definitely do want to feel comfortable. I know that was one of the things that was uh, out here with like Blue Jay Studios and a few other studios here in Mass is, you know, their whole concept was try to actually make a place where the bands could actually live and record all, you know, out in kind of more uh, rural country setting and just get all relaxed and get a nice vibe and all that. And I'm sure a lot of the bands that get transplanted from L.A., they probably enjoyed the fact that they were out of all of that and kind of in a different environment, but felt really good with where they were. And still being in the city, you know, I I'm, I know that there's but there were some great uh, rural locations on the West Coast, too, here and there that were quite popular, but most of the bands told us that we were the, the epitome of having a down-home feel, and we were just far enough out of the downtown core that um, they they felt like they weren't right smack in the middle of uh, hurly-burly bedlam, but they were close enough they could go across the bridge and uh, the clubs were there and uh, great dining and uh, you know it was, and and wonderful hotels of course yeah now w- one of the things that when we spoke to miles ramsey that he mentioned and it, it actually never crossed my mind uh he mentioned you know, that you had a problem with groupies oh eventually yeah. you had to get security now can you tell us a yep. few stories about, about that because like i'm now with social media and everything you know someone can be on some, down there in 10 minutes but like back then i didn't even didn't even cross my mind that groupies would be turning up at the studio there i had to have extra guards on when metallica was it they <laughs> uh the 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 there are certain bands that really drew and uh, i would i would say metallica stuck out acdc a little bit um but uh it was the joke at our place was that um, when Metallica was in town, I would have a hundred or two hundred kids out front pressing the front door, and I had to have the guards on duty. Whereas when Julio Iglesias was in session, we had these uh, about maybe thirty or twenty uh, older women. <laughs> they didn't press the door; they were across the street just very tidily and uh, carefully watching for their idol to come out to go for lunch. <laughs> and the difference was <laughs> we didn't have to have guards for the little old ladies. <laughs> That's the quiet ones you have to watch, Bob. That's right. You never know when you're going to spring into action. <laughs> yeah. You got it. <laughs> so you never had some serious security problems there at all not really we just stayed on top of it and we were very tightly secured as far as all the doors and everything we we we, we were careful and even uh, crossing over from studio to studio was uh, all push button controlled and the codes were changed every day um, no bands were allowed to mix uh, without uh, you know they, they they mixed in the dining and we were very careful about all of that stuff because everybody was paranoid about uh, stealing somebody's song or somebody's riff, you know, silly things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, one of the questions that's always come through my mind, especially as we're talking to all these, you know, different people involved with Little Mountain Sound. So I'll, I'll ask the question to you. What made the decision to go from the Neve to the SSL? Was it the need for more channels? You know, because I mean, nowadays I look back and and I, I just I mean, I covet a Neve board and yet I know I'll never afford one, but then I look at like, you know, Universal Audio's plugins and they literally have a collection of boards in there. And there's one that it has two boards, one's a Neve 
and the other one they called the, like the whiteboard, which is really a model of, of the SSL. And I find it extremely humorous that basically their plug-in collection mirrors what Little Mountain had. But what drove your decision to go from the Neve to the SSL? I, I think it was the engineer guys at that time. And that may have been timing. And, you know, it, it's interesting that that the, the pieces of the Neve uh, were carefully mothered out the door and various people bought them and, uh, and, and, and continued on doing what they do, you know. Uh, uh, but the SSL came to us as being uh, something very special sonically beyond what Neve was doing at that moment. Mm. Then we... Just like in in various, why do why are we going back to vinyl right now again? You know, there's kind of a, a return to basics, and I think I think this was an '80s thing. I think it was a timing thing more than anything, and we made that decision uh, in '82. I think it was shortly after we bought that the pressure was on to at least get a solid state logic in Studio A, and everybody loved it. And a matter of, I think about a year later, we threw in the uh, other one in Studio B. Mm, okay. Now, did that SSL have automation on it, too? Yep, it did. So that might have been a big reason, too? I did. There was a, there were, that would probably be a huge factor, yes, mm. uh, because uh, we needed as uh, as much recall as we could get because we, these sessions were going on for, for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Yeah. We had to build special... Our machine rooms had to be re- completely rebuilt for these uh, these consoles to go in. Yeah. Um, the the requirements were for a certain humidity in the machine room and a certain temperature, and not so much cold, but a uh, certain dampness in the air. And uh, we spent a fortune in the machine rooms. Yeah, it's interesting too, you know, you when you talk about, you know, partly maybe the sound with the '80s too, because I mean, Neve is always known. You know, it's that really warm console. It's the transformers really kind of warm it up. Where you know SSL does kind of have more of of a uh, more of a neutral quality. And of course, a lot of the stuff in the '80s was wrapped in a lot of things like you know going through Yamaha SPX '90s and Lexicons and all these other things that supplanted the board. So yeah, and when you talk about it in that concept as well, it it does kind of make a difference or it makes sense of why you go with something that doesn't have that same warm character as a need but it has more of that sound that that a lot of the 80s music had yep i i I, and i think you've hit it right on and uh you know we still had our great array i mean our our uh array of um processing behind the console Mm. was just a wall to wall of uh, of um, processing that, that the guys kept demanding, you know, I, the joke with Bob Rock was uh, that the the song that he did was already delayed two years because uh, you know he had so much delay on it. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that definitely uh, digital delays at that point in time they were they were just absolutely huge. Yeah, I I can remember that too of. Uh, of never having enough digital delays in my rack and stuff. Absolutely. Yep. It was uh, definitely the time for that. Yes, sir. Yeah. It was fun. <laughs> yes. So, Bob, when, when you sold the studio to the Levin family in 92, um, 
How big a relief was that? And because and you got out of the industry completely. And did, and I did, yeah, and it was great. Yeah, for my wife and I, we got our life back and for our family. And I, I, I really walked away from the business for uh, some time. We moved in, I already had moved into the States. I had a home in uh, in Bellingham and Whatcom County on the lake. And we, uh, we sold that ultimately and moved to Idaho for a whole bunch of time. Okay. And uh, lived there for in Coeur d'Alene for about ten years, and the door was knocked on, and the phone started to ring, and I had people coming at me to do this, do that, fiddle around, and a friend of mine out of L.A. who I got to meet and moved into the Spokane area, uh, he was a digital guy. That's all he knew, and he had enough patience with me, and he basically helped me give birth to my transition from analog to to digital and I will bless him forever because he had enough patience with this old guy who had to um, uh, take his uh, linear brain and change it and uh, it was a it was a big jump it was a it was a huge transition for me but um, I will never look back I love the digital world I do things uh, here just in my home studio now where I sit in a, in a small operation, just my Pro Tools sitting in here and uh, having fun. It's uh, At my age, it's just a hobby thing. I don't, uh, I'm don't. i not trying to win the world, prove the world, do anything crazy, but I, I have fun with it. Yeah, like w one of the things we're, we're finding as we're talking to all the people, and you mentioned it earlier on, that the environment in the studio was a very family kind of oriented. You know, people kind, kind of came in and they, they thought of it as their, as their home. A lot, like Roger says he keeps in touch with the guys he worked with. You are, you, you are obviously the same. You keep in touch with everyone that you worked with there. Pretty well, yeah. And on and off, you know, it's not been much. It's so much. Some of the guys have moved here and there, and, you know, and I, I would say that my, my keeping in touch might be more of a, uh, whether I, I did or didn't, depends on 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 just what, um, it's hard to explain. I, I'm one of these guys that, that doesn't really connect forever to everybody uh i probably have let go and that's one of the faults that i have uh i haven't talked to bob rock in years uh but there here i i talked to roger monk almost every other day or so here in town and uh, ron obvious moved off to manitoba to go right out of the business and um I, I've run into two or three of the other people that uh, we had in our in our stable of wonderful people, and it's um, it's been good. You know, it's uh, it's it's been a wonderful connection. Um, one of our one of our accounting people lives in Calgary, and I uh, got a note from her the other day, and she was laughing about her pension plan now. <laughs> all these years have gone by, and she says. I still got the pension plan that you set up for me 30 years ago. And I go, whoo, okay. Uh, yeah, and so that was kind of a moment of warmth. It was kind of nice. Wow. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's been great talking to all these people and getting this story of Little Mountain. And, and every time we, you know, we talk to another person, it just seems to be just more and more of, of an amazing story of a, of a, something that was just more than a business, that it was just this amazing, cool vibe, kind of a community and all of that. And uh, definitely you've added to that whole viewpoint of the studio. We've had a good time on that journey, and I really appreciate you guys uh, checking in with me to, to talk about this. You've uh, you've brought up some good memories. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. All right. All right, Bob. Well, thank you very much for, for taking a good chunk of your evening out to talk to us. And um, it's, it's like I said, it's been an honor for, 
I know for me to talk to somebody who's been doing this for so long and uh, such an important part of, uh, of music history. I would appreciate uh, if uh, you have a, one, a final compilation of all of this. Uh, when you put it together, uh, I'd love to listen to it. Absolutely, guaranteed. Everybody we've talked to, that's how they finished. They want us to send the links when we finished. And we'll send it We'll send it to everybody. All right, it was really good to talk to you guys. Thanks for bringing up good memories. No problem. Thanks. All right, thanks, Bob. Have a good rest of the night. Thank you. Okay. All Bye. right, you too, guys. Bye. Bye-bye. And there you go, our conversation with Bob Brooks. As I said at the beginning of the show, I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as Richie and I did doing it. And I also hope that you come away with realizing just how much that Bob Brooks brought to Little Mountain and through that association, how much he brought to music in general. And I think the guy is still doing what he loves doing even to this day. Simply amazing. And again, if you want to check out what Bob is up to these days, head up to brooksound.com. So with all that in mind, Richie and I would like to offer our huge thanks to Bob Brooks, one, for coming on the show, two, for sharing so much time and so many stories with us, but also for helping to create essentially the soundtrack to a huge, huge chunk of our lives. So there you go. Episode five of Little Mountain is done. Hope you guys are enjoying this whole concept and this series we're running this year, because again, we got about another... I don't know, five more episodes to go of the Little Mountain Sound Project. And at this point, I'm thinking we're not getting it all in in 2015. And Richie even said that to me the other day. He said, yeah, I I think it's going to be okay if we push it over in 2016. So that might actually happen, that we're going to have a little bit of a crossover. But I will say that uh, Richie already has a really solid idea that he shared with me when we were driving up to the Tremonti and Trivium show. And I think he has come up with yet another home run project idea. Can't wait to share it with all of you out there. So that will do it for this week. And of course, if you're looking for other great shows to listen to, I would urge you to head up to earpeeler.com where Victor curates an incredible list of all the latest shows coming out. The big shows, the small shows, you know, audio podcasts, video podcasts, reviews. It's all up there at earpeeler.com. So please head over there and be able to uh, either check out your favorite podcast or discover some brand new ones. And of course, while you're up there surfing the web, you want to keep up with us on Twitter as well as on Facebook. You could head over to focusonmetal.blogspot.com to find show notes and find announcements we put up there. And of course, our main site, focusonmetal.net where you can find links to almost all of our episodes up there on the episodes page, as well as heading over to the uh, media page where you'll find some interviews and a huge collection of some great tour posters. And I'm always thinking about new things to add to that page. So which is kind of a, a stew of whatever pops into my mind ends up on that page on focusonmetal.net. So that's a wrap for this week. So for Richie and myself and everybody here at Focus on Metal, Hope you guys have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember, focus on metal. Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.